Let me invite you all now to turn with me to the Word of God, and we're going to read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. <clears throat> Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Well, this morning I want to consider with you something that the Apostle is saying as he's coming to the end of this letter to the church at Thessalonica. It's found in the statement in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So let me begin by giving you the setting in which that statement is being made. When Paul came to Thessalonica with the gospel, he preached to them the whole counsel of God. So much so that within a space of three weeks, great things took place and the whole city was affected by the gospel. 
We are told in chapter 1 and verse 9, they turned to God from idols to, to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Now, when Paul is writing this letter, a certain bond has been forged between him and the church. There is a constant interaction between them. And you can see that clearly by his use of the words, we and you. If you have your Bible in front of you, let me just point it out. Chapter 1 and verse 2, we give thanks for you. Chapter 1 and verse 5, you know what kind of men we were among you. Chapter 1 and verse 6, you became followers of us. Chapter 1 and verse 9, they declared to us what manner of entry we had to you. Chapter 2 and verse 1, you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain. So it's clear that this is not a one-sided relationship. It's not a one-man ministry. The letter is not a monologue, it is a dialogue in the deepest and in the truest sense of that word. Now, at the end of chapter 5 of this letter, he's lifting up his heart to God for them in prayer. And I want to focus on that verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Now, there are three things that are interesting about that prayer. First of all, it is a prayer that is based upon the character of God. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And we look at that in a moment. Secondly, it is a prayer that invokes the activity of God. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then in the third place, it is a prayer that rests upon the faithfulness of God. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So first of all, it is a prayer that is based upon the character of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Or may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you completely. So the description that Paul is using is emphatic. He's stressing one aspect of the nature of God. And that gives us another insight or another facet of the character of God, the God that we worship. So there is nothing remote in what Paul is saying here. It's very, very personal because God is a person. So as he's writing this, this letter at this point, he's exhorting them in the name of the one who is their God and who is his God. So may the God of peace himself, the one who is the author of peace, the one who is the lover of concord, may that God himself do for you and in you and with you all that you desire and all that he desires concerning his perfect will for you. So Paul is reminding us that peace is a characteristic of God. He is the God of peace. So what does that mean? It means that within the God of peace, the God whom we worship and serve, and the one who is going to do so much for us, in this God, there is a complete absence of anxiety. There is an absence of disquiet. 
There is no apprehension. There is no uncertainty. So what he's saying, that you will never find in Scripture a description of God with a look of worry on his face. He is totally free from anxiety because everything is under his control. That is peace. He knows all that is going to happen. He is absolutely free from uncertainty. That is peace. And so this God of peace, who has no anxiety or uncertainty concerning himself, nor does he have any anxiety or uncertainty concerning his plans or his purposes. So if you are a true believer this morning, then this is the most wonderful thing for you to think about. Not just this morning, but if you think about this throughout the week. God is absolutely sure and certain that his work of redemption will be accomplished, it will be completed in every one of his redeemed children. That's why top lady could say, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, are the glorified spirits in heaven. Now we must ask ourselves as Christians, do I really believe that? Do I look upon God with confidence, the confidence that this description of him requires? So let me try and illustrate it in this way. You're all aware of the kind of a situation when an emergency or a crisis arises, perhaps at home or at work, and everything becomes a shambles and everybody seems to be in a panic to know what to do. And then someone arrives who is an expert. Perhaps it's the doctor, perhaps it's a paramedic, perhaps it's a fireman, perhaps it's a technician. And immediately people stop fretting And they look to the person who has the situation in full control. Or you may find something that happens within your family, in the home. Something goes wrong. Perhaps the washing machine is overflowing or the car has gone wrong and so on. And immediately the children look to their dad and they say, well, you're the father. You should know. Well, some fathers don't know. But the apostle is saying to us here that with our heavenly father... There are no restrictions and there are no limitations. No one ever looked to him and were disappointed or confounded. That's something what Paul means by the God of peace. This is the one to whom Paul prayed. And this is the one who he is urging us to pray to. And this is one of his favorite descriptions concerning God. Let me mention some occasions when he speaks of the Lord in this way. You needn't turn to them, but Romans 15, 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Philippians 4, 9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. 
2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. And finally, Hebrews 13, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So obviously, that is something that Paul wants us to think as we are thinking about God. He is the God of peace. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ when he stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He was fast asleep in that boat and his disciples, and the storm gets worse and worse. And in the end, they wakened him. I often wonder what kind of a look he had on his face when they did so. But he stood on the prow of that boat and said, Peace, be still. And immediately there was a great calm. Why? Because he is the Lord of peace. And we need to think of him in this way. It was Jesus himself who said, Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In other words, our Lord Jesus Christ wants his people to be calm and assured. He isn't pleased to see us anxious and agitated and on the verge of despair. Our Christianity was never designed to drive us to distraction or to despair. The purpose of the gospel is to bring men and women and young people into a calm and settled assurance of peace. He is the giver of peace. He is also the restorer of peace. How often Christians can lose a sense of that peace. Situations, circumstances arise. Your life is in confusion, commotion in your heart. Your mind is in a terrible state. Turmoil, turmoil and tumult and so on. So what are we to do at such times and in such situations? Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of God rule in your heart at such a time. Literally, let the peace of God be the umpire or be the referee. Those of you that don't support Man United and you support Liverpool, what's the referee for? What is the referee for? The referee is there to blow the whistle and bring everything to a stop when there's been any kind of disturbance or transgression of the rules. And then the referee, or the one who's in charge of the match, they put the matter right. So the apostle is exhorting us, when those things come in to disturb our peace, let the peace of God be the umpire of your heart and mind. One commentator puts it like this, let the peace of God be the chairman of the, of the meeting. So when you have a church meeting, when you go to a business meeting and so on, and the, it, it descends into turmoil, then the chairman calls for this disorder of the meeting to be dealt with and they must be brought to order. In the British House of Commons, you would hear the leader of the house, order, order, and then when he's got order, let's continue and restore things. He does it by his authority. 
the authority that is invested in him. Now Paul is saying to you and me, let the peace of the God of peace be the Christian and the chairman in your heart and life so that when you're worrying, when you're in despair, when you don't know what to do, when you're frightened, let the peace of God bring everything back to order. Now the reason that I'm dwelling upon that aspect of God's character is in order that we might have a greater assurance in God. How can we have this greater assurance in God? Well, it comes through knowing him as the God of peace, and we need to think about him in that way. If our minds are only taken up with the world and the things that are going on in the world, the climate changes, the prospect perhaps of nuclear, uh, nuclear wars and things like that, all the insecurity of the world, the agitation of the world, the frustration of the world, if you're just concentrating on that, you'll be full of anxiety and frustration. We need to learn to think that God is the God of peace. And this God is the God of my salvation. Horatius Bonner's lovely hymn. Not what I am, O Lord, but what thou art. This alone can be my soul's true rest. Thy love, not mine, bids fear and doubt depart and stills the tempest of my throbbing breast. Breast. So this is the basis upon which Paul prays this prayer for these believers. And the apostle himself was a wonderful example of what he taught. Paul was a man who has drunk deeply at the wells of God's peace. He is a man who is always at peace as he was ministering for the cause of Christ. Remember everything that the apostle suffered in his ministry. All the opposition, the criticism, the imprisonment and so on. But he is totally at peace because he knew that his God was the God of peace. He trusted in the God of peace. And he knew that it was the God of peace to whom he prayed. Isn't the hymn true when it says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, simply because we do not come to the God of peace in prayer. So Paul knew in his own experience the truth of God's word. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So it's upon that basis, the character of the God, that he prays this prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you perfectly. So it's a prayer that is based upon the character of God. Secondly, it's a prayer which invokes the divine activity. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, maybe many of you, will know that this verse has raised a number of important questions which require some comment. He's asking that God might sanctify them wholly. Your whole spirit, soul, and body... And there's some debate as to the nature of man. Is he a bipartite or a tripartite being? Is his nature twofold or threefold? 
Well, that could involve you with a great deal of discussion. You can have it in your home later on. But at first sight, Paul's words would seem to indicate that man is a tripartite being. But in fact, the words soul and spirit are often used interchangeably in Scripture. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Soulish, Soulish experiences may refer to the feelings which are more than physical, but they are not spiritual. And by that I mean they are not produced by the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are old enough, we remember that in the 60s and the 70s, people used to speak about looking for soul or finding soul. And during those years, you had the rise of what was called soul music. But it's possible to find what they mean by soul without finding God. So James Denny suggests that the soul means the rational life that is in man, taken as it simply is. The spirit is that same rational life in man, taken into relation to God. And that, I think, is a good understanding of soul and spirit. Two different aspects of the same reality. So you can divide, discuss that, or I hope not with heat in your discussion uh, when you have your lunch. But another question that um, is raised by that word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, suggests that Paul is speaking about the total eradication of sin from the life of the believer. And some Christians have understood that to mean that believers can come to an experience what they describe as entire sanctification or sinless perfection. And they've held that it is possible for a believer living his life in this world to become entirely free from sin. That he can live for months or years in unbroken communion with God and not have one sinful thought. Now that's a very faulty view of sin. And it is totally against the teaching of the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only sinless and perfect being. And those who belong to him, even the most godly and devout, if they say they have no sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. Paul is not speaking about sinless perfection. He's speaking about progressive sanctification. And sanctification doesn't happen in one instant, but by means of a steady development whereby we grow in grace and in the knowledge of God, We compare scripture with scripture and we're delivered from a great deal of misunderstanding concerning this matter. Not so much nowadays, I don't think, but that was so a generation ago. Now, without going any further into those areas of debate and discussion, what is Paul saying to us? He's speaking about the activity of God in the lives of believers. What is God doing with us? And you may sometimes come to that point in your life. What is God doing with me? Well, Paul is saying he is sanctifying you. 
May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. And the essential thought of sanctification is that of being set apart for God. It means the activity of God within your life by the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby God is restoring in us the image which has been marred by sin. And that word holy signifies coherence, that there will not be any more disorder. So he's speaking about the restoring of the effects of sin in our lives and in our personalities as a result of the fall of Adam. That catastrophic event when sin entered into the life and experience of mankind, bringing with it devastating results. And sin has affected every aspect of human nature and of human personality. That is what is meant by total depravity. You hear the expression. It doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could possibly be. It means that every part of his being has been affected to a lesser or greater degree. Sin has affected our entire personality our will, our understanding, our affections. They've all been affected by sin as a result of the fall of Adam. And Paul is saying that what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ is the answer to the consequences of the fall. By his Holy Spirit in our hearts, he's restoring us gradually to what we should be had not sin entered into our heart and life and experience. So the God who saves people in Christ continues to work in them, redeeming them, reclaiming them, refashioning them, remolding them, remodeling them, restoring to them in every part of their being. So that's what Paul means when he says, the God of peace sanctify you wholly. The Holy Spirit making you progressively more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying that your spirit, soul, and body with all of its appetites, with all of its desires, be kept sound and blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the crux of the Christian gospel. God in Christ invades the whole of a man's personality and he works in every nook and cranny of our being, our mind, our will, our appetites, our affections, our conscience. He works in everything about us. The God of peace who has no anxiety and has no uncertainty, is at work in his children. And he is there this morning. In whatever situations or circumstances you find yourself in this morning, he is not only cleansing you, he is restoring you. He's working on that which is broken and blasted and corrupted and disordered and warped, and it's bringing it back to life and to joy, and to peace, and to hope. You think of the tremendous possibilities that that opens up for your life, your whole being being kept perfect by God and for God. And God is doing that for two reasons. He is doing it, first of all, for our pleasure. He wants us to enjoy life to the full to be blessed and contented and fulfilled and peaceful and so on. But secondly, he is doing it for his own glory. Do you remember what God said about the patriarch Job? And God said to his friends and others, have you considered 
my servant Job. There is none like him in all the earth. Why was God doing that? God is saying, do you see what I have done in the life of that man? God is taking the glory for what has happened to Job. And God is working in your life and in mine, not just for our pleasure, but he is doing it for his own glory. And God is constantly displaying his glory. The entire Godhead is preoccupied with his own glory. If I might say it, hopefully, seriously, God is obsessed with his own glory. It is the work of God the Father taken up with his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So when you look around the earth, when you look in the the universe, he is revealing, displaying his glory in all the works and the wonders of creation. That is what God the Son is taken up with in the work of redemption. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Even in our Lord's supreme moment of suffering, of offering himself up to the work of the cross, he cries to the Father, Father, now is the time. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So it is the work of God the Father in creation, the work of God the Son in redemption, and it is also the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Our sanctification. The same God who displays his glory in the universe, the same God who has displayed his glory in Jesus Christ, is the God who deigns to manifest his glory in your life and in my life and in the lives of his people. And that is what God has covenanted to do, to make your life an arena whereby your life will be an arena where the glory of God is being displayed. That's his purpose, that's his aim for your life. It's astonishing that he should go to these depths in order to show his glory in us so that we might become like him, so that you will be preserved until the day when Christ appears. And his concern is not just to save you, but to make you more and more like Christ, body, soul, spirit. And he will do it And you will be presented blameless before the presence of his glory. So that brings us briefly to the third place. Not only a prayer which is based on the character of God, a prayer which invokes the activity of God, but a prayer which rests on the faithfulness of God. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The work which his goodness began... The arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. And the God who has done a work in us, 
and the God who is doing a work in us, the same God will continue to work on us, and he will do a good job of it. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now that's an important thing, an extremely important thing for us to grasp. And it's something I really want us to grasp this morning. God is not just dealing with the circumstances that we are able to understand or the circumstances that we are able to fathom. God is dealing with us, sanctifying us in the deep and the most appalling mysteries that can happen to you in your life. It means that the most torturing circumstances that many of us have faced, are facing, and will yet face, will all be taken as part of the warp and the woof of the beautiful, beautiful pattern that God is weaving. All things are being used to bring you more and more like Christ. All the ongoing circumstances of life, the sufferings that you are going through, have gone through, and will go through, in those sufferings, you will sometimes discover what your friends are like. Some will desert you, some will disappoint you, some will grieve you, and some of them, you just fail, they let you down. But you will also discover in those times of destruction and, uh, and, and suffering and so on, you will discover more and more the character of the God that you worship. You will discover, as Paul discovered, that he is the Father of mercies and he is the God of all comfort. And God is never so precious to a man as when he's going through all the painful trials of life. Do you remember the martyr Stephen? The divine glory shone through Stephen as never before when he was being stoned to death. And to the onlooker, the sufferings of God's people can often present a problem. People look at people suffering and they can't understand the nature and the character and the wisdom and the justice of God. If this is God, I don't want to believe in him. But those sufferings are seldom a problem to those who are doing the suffering. They find God, at times like this, to be the God of peace. The God who, when his children are in the midst of discouragement and distress and trial, what does he do? He flies to our aid, and his very presence brings peace. And if you have ever known real trial, and if you've ever known what it is to have real suffering and opposition, you will know what it is to have somebody who is just there. They may not say anything, but they're just there. And when you go through as a believer your sufferings, God, in all the riches and the glory of his grace, looks down upon you, his child. And he flies from heaven, as it were, 
in order to stand alongside of you. And that's how I believe you should understand this. And if you begin to grasp this God of peace like that, you will have a richer view of God and you will have a deeper and more effective view of your own life and your own experience. He has saved you. He has justified you. Everything that is happening is being done for your good. Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Truly God is good and nothing but good to Israel. Psalm 73. That is the central truth about God throughout the scriptures. The God of peace himself is working everything for your good. So no matter what happens tomorrow, next week, next year, think about the God of peace, that he is there. His purposes are being worked out. You may not see it now, but one day you will. And God is working for you. If you're a Christian this morning, this verse is for you. God will sanctify you wholly throughout your life, making you more and more like Christ and more pleasing to him. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord our God and our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that within this sacred page of Scripture, we can discover you to be the God of peace, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of tenderness. Oh, how we thank you and bless you. And we ask that you will engrave these truths upon our hearts and minds, that in the times of difficulty, we might have that consciousness that you are with us and you are working out everything for our good and for your glory. Help us not to doubt in the dark what we know to be true in the light, that you are a God of grace and goodness. Hear our prayers. Receive our thanks. We ask you to do it for Christ our Saviour's sake.